there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new Moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money Maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Now, enjoy the show. Come on, come on, pick up. Pick up! Come on, you coward. I know you're there. I know you're there. Answer me! A note? You leave me and you leave a note? You coward! You coward! How dare you! Divorce is a tale as old as time, and it's often one steeped in petty manipulation and bitterness. For Joan Robinson Hill, a note left on a table in her empty home may have signaled more than just the end of her struggling marriage. A prolific equestrian and wife of a surgeon, Joan lived the storied leave-it-to-beaver life nostalgic films are made of. But it was a life of restriction, infidelity, and dishonesty. Which ended with a belly full of poison and an ex-husband who became the first man in Texas history to be tried for murder by omission. Joan Robinson Hill's life was one of privilege and excess, but a career in the spotlight was nothing compared to the circus of her death and the subsequent trial. By the time it was over, two more dead bodies would join her in the ground, including her suspected murderer. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the mysterious death of Joan Robinson Hill. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen, subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T.com. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. To understand where Joan ended up, we first need to know where she began. Oh, yeah, you like that, sweet girl? You like the pony? Davis Ash Robinson met Rhea Gardier in New Orleans in 1919. Ash was an oilman, 
finally striking rich with the black gold after several tumultuous business ventures. The couple married and relocated to oil-rich Houston, Texas, where they attempted to grow their little family. <laughs> oh, she likes you, Joni. Come here, pony. That's a good girl. But despite their hopes and best efforts, Rhea was unable to conceive. It's okay, sweet girl. You can pet her nose. Oh, gentle. Gentle. See? Good girl. The couple decided to adopt. And in 1931, a one-month-old baby girl was put up for adoption in a Fort Worth center. Ash and Rhea welcomed little Joan into their lives, and the baby girl was instantly the apple of both of her parents' eyes. Keep your arm steady, Joan. She's doing fine. Just keep them up. Had a girl. Not too fast. The Robinsons truly wanted a child and gave themselves over to spoiling Joan completely. Remember to smile. You have a beautiful smile, sweetheart. Show the judges. Ash and Rhea spared no expense in anything that made their daughter happy. And nothing made Joan happier than the horses in her family's stable. Head up. Tighten the lead. I am. No, you're letting her lead you. If you're on the back of a half-ton animal, you need to lead her. Good, see? You do know how to lead. Joan began riding at the age of three, and by seven had already become a fixture on the rodeo circuit. Good girl, Dottie. She won nearly every competition she entered. What a good ride, Dottie girl. It would not be incorrect to call Joan a prodigy. She took to riding like a duck took to water, and her parents encouraged her success in dressage. She began her career on a horse named Dottie, but by her 20s had added beloved Belinda and precious possession to her stables. Along with some 500-odd trophies from various competitions with the two horses. It might seem odd to all of us non-equestrians, but Joan was a monumental star on the circuit, and beloved Belinda was as famous as Mr. Ed. Joan decided to retire Belinda in 1959 with a last public goodbye to an arena packed with fans. Sports Illustrated wrote an entire article on it, stating, quote, The combination of the beautiful mare shown by her equally decorative owner has been one of the most successful in recent show history. Together, they've taken more than 86 blue ribbons and four five-gated world championships in the amateur division. The horse was so beloved that a live band played Old Lang Syne as she trotted around the arena, wearing a cape decorated with roses. This all may seem excessive, and rightfully so. It was. But this was a life that Joan was accustomed to, and she wasn't used to being told no. That is, until she left the nest. In what's often described as poor little rich girl syndrome, Joan spent her teen years and much of her 20s trying her best to rebel against her arguably privileged background. Joan attended college in Missouri in 1949, where she took up theater. <sighs> Mama! Mama! Now what in the hell is that racket? Oh, you won't believe it, Mama. Take a breath. It came. They liked me. Finish your sentences. The scouts at the play? Yes! Oh, my baby! Is anyone going to clue me in, or do I have to keep wondering? Oh, it's wonderful news, Ash. Well, I wouldn't know, would I? 
no one will spit it out. Daddy, the most wonderful thing. Some men came to see my shows. I don't like the sound of that. From Hollywood. From Metro Goldwyn Mayer. I really don't like the sound of that. Oh, sweetheart. They thought I was good. Real movie types. Can you believe it? Of course they did. Now, I figure we can drive out by the end of the week. No. What? Ash. No. Ash Robinson was an indulgent man, but his only daughter jaunting off to Hollywood was a step too far away for him. This was the man who rented an entire floor of a hotel so he could visit her in school whenever he liked. Ash, darling, please, let's just think. You know what kind of men are out there in California. And you know our daughter. Yes, I do. She would trust anyone who tells her to. We're going to send a girl like that out alone? Well, she wouldn't be alone. And what? You go with her? Leave me here all on my own? It wouldn't be for forever. I said no. She's not going. It was a blow to Joan, who saw her new dream slipping away. And she did what every teenager does best. She acted out. I, Spike Benton, do take thee, Joan, in sickness and in health. For richer or poorer. As long as we both shall live. She clandestinely married Navy pilot Spike Benton while still attending Stevens College. I do. I do. By the power vested in me by the state of Missouri, I do pronounce you Mr. and Mrs. Cecil Burglass. You may kiss the bride. And then, after a quickie divorce, married lawyer Cecil Burglass, whom she knew as a child. Joan was married and divorced twice before her 21st birthday. You did what? (laughs) And Ash hit the roof. What's the problem, Daddy? Someone finally wants to take care of me. Beyond the obvious elopement concerns, Ash hated both men. And Joan's early divorces would come to haunt her later in life. Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. And now, let's continue our story. Joan was a charming, vivacious social butterfly, and Ash believed neither of her first two husbands were good enough for his daughter. In the face of her father's disapproval, both marriages dissolved after six months. But six years later, in 1957, Joan finally met a man her father could approve of. You look beautiful, sweetheart. Joan married a plastic surgeon, John Hill, in a grand ceremony, and the two settled into a comfortable life. Joan continued competing and winning in the equestrian circuit, and John formed his own surgery practice. For the most part, they were more like roommates than spouses at first. And that suited both John and Joan just fine. John gained a wife of great status and family wealth, who opened the door to Houston's elite for him just as much as his surgery practice had. And Joan gained societal approval and stability while maintaining her independence. It was unconventional, but it worked for the couple. What was most likely a marriage of convenience proved fruitful for the first few years, particularly for Joan. You need to remember, 1957 was a completely different world than 2017. Yeah, the Divorce Reform Act, which legalized no-fault divorces, wasn't passed until 1969. That meant that in order to legally obtain a divorce, one of the parties had to prove in court that their spouse was at fault, usually providing evidence of abuse or deceit. 
Normally, this was prohibitively difficult to prove, but Joan had managed it twice. Keep this in mind, as this will be an important detail as the story unfolds. Joan Robinson was a twice-divorced woman in a world where even one divorce could derail your entire social standing. Marrying a wealthy plastic surgeon and continuing with her own career was literally one of the best possible outcomes for Joan. She was young enough that she could have stayed living with her parents, supported financially, but they would have ruled her every action. So, for Joan, marriage was more about passing from the care of father to husband. Women could not even open a credit card under their own name without their husband's written permission until the 1970s. It was a restrictive, conservative time. Joan managed to avoid the worst of it by virtue of her unconventional profession. But she needed a husband, and she needed one quickly. And it needed to stick this time. Joan and John Hill became a fixture in the Houston nightlife. And social butterfly Joan very neatly slotted into a new title, socialite. Tell them the name. Tell them the name. Beloved Belinda. (laughs) Can you believe it? (laughs) It's a perfectly good name. It really is. Are you ever embarrassed when you introduce her? Maybe a little. But then they normally pin on a blue ribbon and it gets better. Well, drink to that. The Hills had their son Robert, nicknamed Boot, three years after they were married, in 1960. By 1965, the family had two homes in Houston, including a farm for Joan's horses. John took out a loan from Ash for his second mortgage and soon went to his father-in-law again with his hat in his hand once they moved in. Joni tells me you like music. I do. You ever considered making a go of it? Sure did. Why didn't you? Medicine is an easier life. More stable. Smart man. But I did... I did have something to ask you. Ash built a farm for his daughter to begin her own riding academy, and John decided to see if his own dream could come to fruition. John had a lifelong love of music, and even formed his own band, The Heartbeats. And if you have a band, of course, you need to practice. As you know, we have an empty wing in our house. Excellent for a baby's room. Yes, yes, of course, it could be. But it could also be excellent for a studio. Studio? For music, music studio. John longed to build a personal studio, but didn't have the capital. But Ash did. How much are you asking? It'll be a loan. I'll pay you back, with interest. And that would be... $10,000. No. Ash had the money, but he didn't have the will. No? Just like that? I'm sorry, John, but I said you were a smart man before. What's changed? Before, you didn't ask me for $10,000 to put up some wood paneling and park a piano. Ash spared no expense for his daughter, but John was not afforded the same generosity. And in actuality, that may have ended up being a wise choice. Despite the hurt feelings, Hill found a bank to loan him the money. And the project, which would eventually take over four years to complete, was underway. But the costs kept spiraling. 
with imported pianos, state-of-the-art speakers, and outlandish woodwork, what was originally a $10,000 project had ballooned to $100,000. And Joan was not happy. Living separate lives was fine in a young marriage, but with a toddler son to care for, Joan began to resent John's wild undertaking. In 1968, 11 years after their wedding, the hills were barreling towards divorce. Said Joan to a friend. He doesn't care about me or our son or anybody else. Only that goddamn music room. I wish we had never started building it. This would be Joan's third divorce in 15 years. And Ash Robinson had proven to have very, very deep pockets when it came to his little girl. The best lawyer's money could buy, one would say. And John had proven he had a willingness to stray. If divorce did loom on the horizon, it would not have been difficult at all to find John at fault. All they would need was proof of an affair. Okay, children. Parents are here to pick you up, so please form a single file line. Come on now, like we worked on. (laughs) Is your kid one of the good ones actually standing in line? Nope, of course not. Always has to be told three times before he follows the rules. Just three? You have to teach me your ways. My kid takes at least four. (laughs) That's the John Hill promise. We can have your kid behaving mildly better. (laughs) Well, I take it you're John then. Brains and beauty. I know, I know. I'm very wise. Well, John, I'm Anne. Anne Kurth was a three-time divorced mother of three when she met John in August of 1968. Evidently, John Hill had a type. The two soon found themselves in bed together, but it was far from a one-night stand. John and Anne carried on a continued affair for months. By the end of the first month, however, John became so enamored with Anne and so fed up with his marriage to Joan that he left both of the houses he and Joan lived in, even the one with his beloved music room. Joan arrived home from a horse show near Houston to a note, simply saying, Things are not good between us. It maybe shouldn't have come as a surprise due to their mutual unhappiness, but Joan was nevertheless rattled by her husband's departure. You've reached Dr. Hill's office. How can I be of assistance? Hi, yes. Is John in right now? May I ask who's calling? This is Joan, his wife. I've already called three times. Hi, Mrs. Hill. Unfortunately, Dr. Hill isn't available at the moment. Can I take a message? No, I've already left three messages. Is he never available? Dr. Hill is busy with a patient. Until then, are you sure I can't take a message? No! No, you can't. Joan called his office frequently, but she never got a return call from John. I don't know, Daddy. I don't know what else to do. I've tried every way I know to get a hold of him, but nothing. Nothing but this damn note. We should hire a private investigator. Someone who's a professional could find him. I doubt he's done any work to cover his tracks. No, no, don't do that. Why not? I think... I think he just needs some time alone. Maybe we both do. You think this is what you need? Spending your nights soaking your pillow in tears? Look, if a private eye goes looking for him, he'll never trust me again. And I don't know if we can recover. You think you can recover from how things currently are? I... I hope so. A couple weeks after John left the note, he finally got back in contact with Joan. We'll hear how that went after this break. 
And now, let's continue our story. My word. So you're alive. Yep. Uh, yes. Uh, I am. I tried calling the office over and over. I know. I just... I didn't know how to handle things. Well, I think you pretty clearly went about it the completely wrong way. I'm sorry. What's going on? I know we had some issues, but... There's... well... You can tell me. I don't know how to begin. Uh, There's... another woman. (gasps) You... you... Not long after that meeting, in November of 1968, John had his wife served divorce papers. John still wanted to make the marriage work, however, despite her knowledge of his affair. No one wants even one failed marriage, let alone three. And they had their son Boot to worry about as well. She refused to sign. Well, this did nothing to ingratiate herself with John. Which pushed Ash Robinson to his limit. Despite his daughter's wishes, Ash hired PIs to investigate John. They discovered that John had been living with Anne after he up and left Joan. But the divorce papers gave him new information on his whereabouts. John was now renting a brand new apartment in the Post Oak District of Houston. This obviously didn't sit well with Ash, who, in December of 1968, called John at his apartment and asked to meet with him at the Kirby Drive house he had helped the couple buy. John, come in. Why don't you have a seat? Hello, Ash. I think you'd be wise to call me Mr. Robinson. Apologies, Mr. Robinson. How are you liking the Post Oak area? That is where your new apartment is, right? Yep. Yes, it is. Uh, I like it fine. Just fine? What a shame. Now, John, you already have a house and the ranch, don't you? Well, sir, I, I think you know... I'm looking for a yes or a no, son. Yes. And you have your big music room in the house, yes? Yes, sir. Now, these homes you already have, they were expensive. I would know more than you since, well, it's me footing those bills. Well... In addition to the professional expenses I've been helping you out with. And you know I'm grateful, sir. I don't know that, son. And I've seen nothing to imply anything of the sort. Now my baby girl, for whatever harebrained reason, wants to stay married to you. Can you believe that? I... Hell, me neither. But she does. So I have a limited time offer for you. An offer? You got a hearing issue? All that time playing music? Uh, No, sir. I I just... Then listen up, son. You're going to move back in with my baby girl. And you're going to forget all about this little hussy you're seeing. And in return, the money you owe on the house, the business expenses, I'll remain as lenient as I've been on the repayment period. Okay. I'm going to need you to sign this paper for me. I don't trust your word. John did sign, and he kept up at least part of his bargain. He moved back to the Kirby Drive house, and after some tense discussions and arguments, had made up with Joan by Christmas time. The divorce papers were withdrawn, and things seemed to be okay again. But it wasn't long until the old rot in the relationship ate away at it again. Anne didn't want to stop seeing John, and he felt the same way. By early January of 1969, the two were back to carrying on their old affair. The issue was, he was still living with Joan, 
and threatened to leave John, however, if he didn't finally end things with Joan. This, surely by coincidence, was also around the time Joan became ill. I really do think the boy is learning a lot, though. Well, with you teaching him, that's no surprise. <laughs> You're too kind. Oh, I'm not nearly kind enough. I can't possibly thank you enough for moving out here to train. These kids are running circles around me. Well, it's my... Well, look what the cat dragged in. Nice to see you too, Eunice. Hey, I brought back some pastries for you all. Oh, John, thank you so much. Ooh, this one looks so good. That one's for Joan, unfortunately. Uh, but here, Diane, this one is just as good. Maybe even better. Don't tell her I said that. <laughs> for you, Eunice. Thank you. And for you, sweetie. Thank you. After the initial separation, Joan spent a lot of time with her friends Diane and Eunice. They stayed as house guests the entire week leading up to her illness in March 1969. And this meant that they were frequently present for fights between Joan and John. John, wait a second. Where are you going? I have to make a house call. I'll probably be out all night. Again? Yes. You've been out all night twice this week. Well, what do you want me to do? Not work? You already complained that I'm not paying your father back. So which is it, Joan? You can work during the day, or how about instead of playing concerts with the heartbeats, you work then? So don't do the thing I love. Understood. Oh, right. That's exactly what I'm saying. Look, I'm going right now. If you stay out tonight, you shouldn't bother coming back. You've blown it, John. You've just lost your wife, your son, and your damn music room. The fights grew more and more frequent throughout March of 1968. And on the 15th, new information would only cause the rift between the couple to grow larger. On that day, Eunice grew increasingly worried about Joan, as she hadn't left her bed by 4 o'clock in the afternoon. This wasn't normal. She usually took her son Boot to school, and then had a packed schedule throughout the day. Eunice asked John if Joan was okay, and he told her that she was having trouble sleeping the night before, so he gave her a mild tranquilizer. He expected her to sleep most of the day, and it didn't mean anything was wrong. Joan was embarrassed when she finally did wake up and apologized for being rude to her house guests. She confirmed what John told Eunice, however, and said he did give her a pill that knocked her out. She asked where John was, and they told her he was in the music room, as always. She went in to tell him to take Boot to get a haircut. John did, and while he was gone, Joan caught up on the calls she'd missed in her long sleep. She had so many to get to that she didn't realize just how long John was gone. Here he is. Look how good he looks now. Like a regular Paul McCartney. Oh, you look just great, Boot. Thanks, Mommy. I'm going to go up to the music room. Boot, it's after seven. What took you guys so long? Uh, I don't know. Come on, Boot, you can tell Mommy. Daddy made me promise not to tell. It's just between us. Daddy took me to an apartment. He said he had to pick up some music. Thanks for telling me. Now why don't you go watch some TV? Damn it! Damn it! It was a heartbreaking blow for Joan, who was already in a delicate state. She had been suffering mood swings, but she soon began suffering from flu-like symptoms. 
Not long after, Joan would end up in the hospital. What's wrong with her? They don't know. Well, do something! I'm a plastic surgeon. What exactly am I supposed to do? Joan was overtaken by vomiting and incontinence, which ravaged her internal organs. After she was found collapsed in her home, she was rushed to the hospital, where she struggled to breathe and keep fluids down. There, she was bundled in towels as she had been defecating blood. It's an infection. Well, how did she get it? I don't know. Well, how long was she like this? I don't know. What are they doing for her? I don't know. They're... They're... Joan died painfully, wasting away in the hospital. A tragic loss, and one that would tear any family apart. But the state of Texas wasn't content to let Joan's death pass quietly. Yes? Mr. Hill? Yes? I need you to come with me. The hospital details were simply too strange to ignore, and John was arrested on suspicion of murder. Instead of comforting a grieving widower, the hospital staff became convinced that John was up to no good. Joan languished in their family home for three days before her mother intervened in John's, quote, home care. Rhea walked in on John standing over Joan's wasted body. Her daughter was lying in her own bloody filth. John agreed to finally take her into the hospital, but refused an ambulance. And instead of taking her to a much closer, much better equipped ER, John drove Joan to Sharpstown General Hospital, a 45-minute drive. Please note, at the time, Sharpstown General did not have an ER or an intensive care unit. Surely a surgeon such as John would at least be somewhat familiar with hospital capabilities in the area. Joan died at Sharpstown at the age of 38, despite the staff's best efforts. And John was swiftly put under a microscope. The trial that followed would make history in Texas and lead not to one, but two additional murders. Atta girl, up, up, up. It was a promising life cut short. And the beginning of a strange, petty spiderweb of a crime. Join us next week, where we dive into Joan's final hours and the swift unraveling of John's picturesque life. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday we'll continue our investigation into Joan Robinson's untimely death. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden, and written by Samantha Guresh and Kenneth Martin. Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. 
The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Jerry Courtney Austin, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Kenna McEnroe, Manuna Ryan, and Steve Pinto. Butterfly. 